We're going to jump in today, and, and I do believe that this is, a, this is just a continuation of what God began last week. And, uh, you know, I have the faith to believe that God has more for us. Does anybody else have faith to believe that? I really do. I'm not just saying that because it's my turn to preach and I have to follow up these crazy guest speakers that come up with songs off the top of their head. I mean, I really do believe that God is, there's, the best is yet to come. I believe that God is doing something new in our faith community. And when we all get on board, it's going to be a world-changing movement. I believe that. I think I'm still young enough and idealistic enough to believe that we could change this city. That God would have more for us and more to do in us and through us. I hope you're with me. If you're, uh, if you're at all interested in that, I invite you to open your Bible to 1 Kings 16. The Lord dropped this passage in my heart before last week. And then when I heard Pastor Eric during the 11-11 start preaching out of 1 Kings 17, I was like, oh no, he's stealing my, stealing my scripture. <laughs> and, and the Lord was like, no, I'm setting the stage. I'm setting the stage. So I'm going to say a prayer because we would like all of us for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So uh, let's ask him. Let's open up our hearts in this prayer. This is not just you eavesdropping on me saying a prayer. This is you opening up your heart to receive from God. Amen? Let's do that. Lord, we're here today, every single one of us, because of you and you alone. We thank you for, uh, we do thank you for guest speakers and prophets come to town. And, but more than any person, more than me right here in this moment, we thank you for your presence. That it's all based on what you do, the voice that you speak to our hearts with, the transformation that you can bring through the power of your spirit. We commit ourselves to you right now. We fix our eyes on you right now. We offer you our hearts right now and ask that you would speak to us, change us, transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you're taking notes, you can write down this title. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's a, it's a fun question. Uh, you know, I don't know what it is that you're doing here right now, uh, but have you ever been in one of those what are you doing here moments where maybe you asked the question to somebody or somebody asked it to you? Uh, the reality is that that question can come off two very different ways. You know, maybe you tell, you tell mom and Nana that you're, you're, you're away at school or you, you move to another city and, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it home for Christmas it's just not going to work out, so I don't have the money to make it. And then you show up on the doorstep on Christmas Eve. They open the door and they say, what are you doing here? What they're really saying is, we're so excited that you're here. Come on in. They're not like, you know, mom's not asking, well, what are you, what are you doing here? You know, no, no. She's saying, wow, I didn't think you were coming. And I'm so glad that you came and you made it. On the other hand... Sometimes when people ask that question, it's not with the same sentiment. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> what are you doing here? You know? Like, I don't know if you've ever been asked that question before or you've asked somebody that question, but um, that question can be sort of offensive because it comes off. Really, the message that's behind that question is not, hey, what action are you accomplishing here in this time in this space geographically? It's like, why are you here right now? Am I right? Like, when you say, what are you doing here, it's not really, you're not really asking, like, physically, what are you doing? You're probably asking, like, how did you get here, or why are you here? What are you doing in that sense? My wife and I, this is my wife, Jessica, we've got two kids, uh, a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and 
they kind of been in this mode lately where they like to have slumber parties in mom and dad's room. And so we've been allowing that because we're trying to embrace just how much they love us right now. And maybe they won't as much one day, but we're going <laughs> to teach them to just, you know, love us as much as they can right now. So, so we let them have slumber parties. And what we do is we'll set up a little, like, blanket on one side of the bed on the floor for one and then a blanket on the other side of the bed on the floor for the other. And we've been doing that often lately. Um, and, and just this week, we, we talked about this genuinely. I'm not just making this up because it's a sermon analogy. We had the most bizarre experience of our parenting careers just this week. And it happened when they were sleeping in a room. It was family slumber party. And at 2 a.m., I heard the whimper of my son uh, come out of his mouth. And that's not really unique because our three-year-old has, like, the worst case of FOMO ever. Like, he just always fear of missing out on something. Like, he thinks something's going on. And so he'll wake up in the middle of the night three, four times, like, scared that dad's taking a shower without him or something. And I'm like, dude... Son, I promise you, I will come and wake you up when it is a godly hour of the day. You could go to bed right now. I will get you. But, so he, he's in that mode of doing that often. Um, but, but this was different. And so he was sort of whimpering. And I was like, Parker, what's wrong? And he started crying louder. And so I got out of my bed and I went in the dark, went down to his like, little place where he was. And he wasn't there. It was just his blankets. It's like he disappeared. And his whimper got louder, and it started to turn to a cry. I'm like, where are you, Parker? And it started to get louder and louder, and he wasn't really, like, answering me. He just was crying, and, and it was like, uh, it was a cry that I never heard before. Of course, if you're a parent, you recognize there's a difference between, like, a cry to get attention and, like, a fearful cry. You know what I'm saying? And this started to become a fearful cry, and yet it had a different sound to it. It was, it was almost like it was muffled. It was like I was living in Stranger Things, like it was coming from the walls or something. And I didn't know what was going on. And so I grabbed the cell phone real quick, and I'm, I'm looking all about the pitch black room for where he was, and I realized that the, the cries were coming from under the bed. And so I raised the bed skirt, and I'm look, I had to look past some bags that were shoved under there until finally I saw my son in the middle of our king-size bed in the dead middle under there. And then I realize as he starts to shriek with fear that his head is caught under the bar. This is 2 a.m. I don't know how he got under there, but of course my first question is, what are you doing under there? As if me posing that question was gonna change anything about the situation. And then my next statement was, come out. And he literally could not come out. How do you get in places in life where you get somewhere, but then you can't figure out how to get back out of that place? I don't know, but we get there in life. You put that ring on your finger and then it won't come off. It's like, how does that work? You know what I mean? I'm not talking about a wedding ring. You don't want that to come off. But we get in situations in life where you get in and you don't know how to get out. And so I pulled the Superman in the situation. I lifted that bed up with my mighty strength. I held the mattress with my neck, and then I'd lift the metal bar up that was over his neck to set him free. I know. And then I asked him eight more times, what were you doing under there? <laughs> to which we never received an answer. Probably never will. And that's kind of a silly story, but what I want to invite you to do, because uh, you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, I want you to keep that question in mind as we jump into the scripture, because 
Sometimes God asks us, what are you doing here? And I think that sometimes if he asks us that question, what he's really saying is, why are you here and not there? And why are you doing what you're doing now instead of what I asked you to be doing? And you see what I mean? And I felt like the Lord gave us, gave us this for the, the week right after the sound. So we're going we're gonna, to um, jump into the life of a prophet, a prophet named Elijah. And we're going to start in 1 Kings uh, 16. And I, I need to read a few verses at the end of 16 before we jump into really Elijah's life and his role and his words in 17. Because we have to understand the context and the situation. And so if you would read with me 1 Kings 16 starting in verse 29. This is the stage. This is what's going on. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. So what's going on is that God's singular one kingdom, the 12 tribes of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, there was one kingdom that God established, the kingdom of which he was to be the king and he was to be the head. There was one kingdom, and at this point in time, that kingdom had split. After the reign of Solomon, that one united kingdom split into two separate kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah, which is composed of two tribes, and the northern kingdom of Israel, which at the time was composed of the remaining ten tribes. And so what it's saying here is that this bad dude named Ahab became the king of the northern ten tribes of Israel. And it says this, verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Somebody said, that's a bad guy. If you're looking for a name to name your son, don't choose Ahab. And then, and then the Bible goes out of its way to say this. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, which, by the way, what that's saying is the sin of Jeroboam was this, that Jeroboam became a, a previous king of the nation of Israel, and his sin was this. He intentionally and deliberately set up altars to worship foreign gods in the land because he said this. You could look it up a few chapters before. He said, if I send the people back down to Jerusalem to worship God the way that God intended, their hearts will be turned back to the Lord, and I don't want that, so I'm going to set up false god worship in Israel so they won't. Go there and do that and turn their hearts to God. This is a terrible sin for a leader of Israel to commit. And what, he's say, what the scripture is saying is that, that this king, Ahab, was walking in the same sins of Jeroboam. And if it wasn't bad enough that he did that, he went and took this woman named Jezebel to be his wife. It's saying, this guy is an evil dude. And if he's not evil enough just by his sin, he took this woman to be his wife. Well, that's a bad name. Jezebel, that's not what you want the Lord saying about you. But this is his story. Ahab married Jezebel, and they set up altars for Baal. This is what it says in the middle of verse 31. He went and served Baal and worshipped him, and he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. God didn't build it. The prophet of God didn't build it. He built it. Verse 33, and Ahab made an Asherah, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings who were before him. Chapter 17, verse 1, listen here. This is what Eric began to preach on last week. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, this is the prophet of God coming to the king, and he said this. This is a prophecy. This is the words 
and the thoughts and the intentions of God being spoken through a man or woman. He said, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be uh, neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's a strong prophecy right there. That's not a generic prophecy. That's something you should only say if you're pretty confident that the Lord has said that to you. And he did. I want to help you understand exactly what's going on here because the, the purpose and the execution of this prophecy, that is what takes place in the speaking of the prophecy and what God does to fulfill that prophecy, came with a point. God always speaks prophecy for a purpose. God always gives his commandments for a purpose. God doesn't give arbitrary commandments for that matter. That is to say that God doesn't give us commandments just to see if we'll follow them. Do you know that about our God? I think especially for young people growing up, you think, oh, God's just like this cosmic killjoy, and he's given me all these commandments to take away my fun and my friends, and he really doesn't have my best in mind, and that's a lie about who our God is. Every commandment that comes from God is actually for our good and for his glory. So when we choose to obey him and the things that we think are going to make our life worse, it actually turns out to make our life better because God, God doesn't give us random commandments. And the prophecies that he give us, gives us are always for a purpose as well. And the purpose of this one, if you've never noticed, is this. The, the gods that these people were worshiping were the gods of Baal and Asherah, and this is who those false gods were. They believed that Baal was the god of vegetation and produce. So think about that. If your heart is being turned to worship this false God and you, you worship that God because you think that that God is the one that's producing for you things like rain, things like growth, produce and vegetation, food, sustenance for life, and Asherah being the sex goddess or the fertility goddess, if you're worshiping her because what you're really saying in your heart is, I trust you, Asherah, to provide for us kids in the future, what they were doing was saying, God, Yahweh, we don't trust you to be both the giver of life and the provider and sustainer of life. We're turning to these other gods. That's why he would give a prophecy and a fulfillment of a prophecy like giving a drought because he's trying to show the people who God really is who provides those things. It's not just, hey, let me just take away their rain and punish them. No, it probably is a punishment, to be honest, but it's punishment with purpose. If you have kids, you know you don't give random punishments. You give punishment with purpose because you want to see change in the heart. And this is why God gives this, this prophecy through this, this prophet named Elijah and why God makes this happen. Let me just say this before I move on. The grace of God comes at us in different ways in life. And sometimes as human beings, we have a problem accusing God of false motives. And I want to tell you this, that the grace of God sometimes comes to you in the gifts that he gives you. And the grace of God sometimes comes to you in the things that he takes from you. Many of us have been in those situations in life where we feel like, oh God, why, how could you? You, you've, you stripped me down, I've got nothing, I, I have no money, I have no job, I'm just, I'm miserable and you've ruined my life. And you know what? That might be the greatest gift that he could ever give you by taking those things from you that you put in front of him. Somebody needs to hear that today. God it is a grace of God for him to strip you of anything else that you've made a God in your life. Yeah. 
If he, if he hated you, he would allow you to continue in that. In fact, that's what the New Testament says the wrath of God is, by the way, is to give, one, give somebody over to the sin that they're walking in. That's what Romans says. The fact that God would save us from idolatry is grace. And that's what his intention was for his people in this time. So Elijah speaks this to the king. He speaks this, as it were, to all of the people. And then he goes away for three years. And, uh, and the drought takes place. There's not, there's not a drop of rain. There's nothing. And even the, even the river that Elijah was kind of hanging out next to, it says that because of the drought, it dried up. There was, there was like hardly no water in the land. And you can read it on your own, what happens in chapter 17. And he goes and hangs out with the widow and her son. And it's a great story. You should really read these chapters. We don't have time to read it all today. But a lot's going on. In the beginning of chapter 18, God says to Elijah, you need to go back and show yourself to Ahab because I'm going to send rain. And then what we're going to see is that he had, he had things to accomplish prior to the fulfillment of that promise. Because the fulfillment of that promise would only come after what God did in the hearts of the people. And so Elijah goes back, and we're going to pick up, uh, basically, Elijah comes back to the, to the king Ahab, and he says to him, hey, I want to get everybody together because we need to settle this once and for all. And this is what it says in 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 19. This is Elijah speaking. He says this, Now therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near the people and he said this, How long will you go on limping between two gods? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. And so the stage is being set for the people to finally make a decision. I want you to notice it wasn't just the king that was there that day. It wasn't just the 850 prophets and those that were leading everybody astray that day. All of Israel, as it were, was there on that mountain that day. Probably not every human being, but the people were represented in that setting. And he poses this question, how long are you going to go back and forth like a wave tossed in the wind between which God you're going to follow? Just make a choice. If God is God, then follow him. If he's not God, then don't. But don't waver in the middle between the two. Have you ever felt that way about your life? Have you ever been in that situation in life where you're going back and forth and back and forth and, and you want God but you don't want to give this thing up and you want to follow him and you want his blessing in your life but you keep pursuing those other things? And Look, if God is God at all, he's God that's over all. If God is worthy of any part of your life, he's worthy of all of your life. Jesus said, I came to bring life and life to the full, and I think that he means that you need to take the fullness of what I have to offer you if you want the fullness of life that I want to give you. Have you given him everything in your life, not just part of your life? Have you turned your whole heart to him? This is the question that Elijah is posing to the people. Notice he wasn't even looking at the prophets. He addressed the people. If God is God, follow him fully. So he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to settle this today. All of you prophets of Baal, 
you build an altar and put a bowl on top of your altar. I'll build an altar of the Lord and put a bowl on top of my altar. And all of you guys can call out to your God. And I will call out to my God. And whichever God sends fire from heaven down to consume the burnt offering, that's the true God. Deal? And they said, yeah, let's do it. So because he's a polite prophet, he says, you go first. And he sits in his lounge chair and eats his popcorn and watches. So they set up their altar and they put their bowl up there and they start crying out to God. And they're, they're wailing and praying and hooting and hollering. It says from morning until noon, they're crying out to Baal to send fire from heaven. And nothing happens. Because he's a polite prophet, he starts posing some very polite questions like, where's your God at? Seriously, you should read this. He's so sarcastic. He's like, is your God sleeping? Maybe he's in the restroom. Does he need a hand? Where's your God at? And they're just, they're working themselves up. They're getting probably furious to the point. They start cutting themselves and it says the blood starts flowing and nothing happens. So he says, okay, it's my turn. I think we should read. I know, I'll set the stage. So, so he says, okay, it's my turn. So he builds the altar. You, you should read this. We don't have time to read it all. But it says that he repaired the altar of the Lord as his altar. That's important. Because he reestablished what the Lord had previously established, not a new thing. It says that Ahab set up his own altars, but Elijah came to repair the altar of the Lord. Because if you're going to worship God, you need to worship God his way. And it says that he took 12 stones and set them up all around to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, all 12 of them, not just 10 of them, not just two of them, but all 12, because God wanted to bring all of his people back to him that day. And so Elijah set up the altar of the Lord, and he put his bowl on top of it, and then he said, before I call down fire, I just want to make sure that you know it's not me nor any work of man that's going to accomplish this great feat today. I want you to fill up those three buckets of water and dump it on top of my altar before I call fire down on it. And I never noticed this before. I heard Pastor Levi Lusco teach on this, and it was a new thought to me. Maybe, maybe it'll be a new thought to you, but I never connected the point that at this particular moment in time, there was a drought in land. A drought so bad that there wasn't even water in the river for Elijah himself. And so for him to say, fill up those, I've always thought that the point of this was that, oh, they put water on it so it's wet and water doesn't burn so much, but it might be deeper than that. What he might have been saying was, if you truly want to see God move in a powerful way, it's going to take sacrifice out of your pocket. And these people that probably had none or a very little amount of water had to pour it out in order for him to do his thing. So he said, fill up those three buckets of water and then pour them out on my altar. And he said, do it again. He said, do it again. Three times he did it. So I think that's nine, nine or 12 or something barrels of, well, I don't know if it was three or four. Anyway, I know how to do math, but <laughs> four or three, carry the one. Either way, it was soaked. <laughs> but it took a sacrifice from the people. And then it says, this, this, is what, this is what Elijah said. He didn't hoot and holler and make a big scene. He says this in uh, 18 verse 37. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me. And this is extremely important. Because the what that's going on in the situation 
is this big scene with the altar and supposedly calling down fire, but the why is far more important. The what might be the sound, the conference. The what might be the miracle. The what might be the great healing that you experience. The what might be the fireworks. But the why is always what's truly important. He says, answer me, O Lord, that this people may know you. O Lord, that you are God and that you have turned their hearts This is why God shows up in power. This is why the miraculous comes to turn our hearts back to him. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water from the trench and all of the people saw it and they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The people's response to the power of God was a declaration of who he is. And it was a performance, not performance, but uh, they fell in worship to God. That's what we should do when God shows up in power in our life. Whether it's by miracle or healing or deliverance or a word that's spoken or prophecy or whatever it is. What we need to do when God shows up is fall on our faces, worship him, and acknowledge him as the only true God. And this is what it says the people did. The people. Now watch what happened. I said all that to get here in, verse, in chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 1. After that, they put to death all the false prophets he went and prayed, the clouds came, the rain came, God showed up, it was beautiful. But this is what happened. Ahab went and told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and, all, and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She said, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. Then he was afraid. The threat of one woman made him afraid. What kind of courage would it have taken to stand on Mount Carmel amidst all the people of Israel and 850 prophets and King Ahab? What kind of courage would it take to stand up there on the mountain the day before and go through this whole thing? What kind of faith would it take to call down fire from heaven? And then the word of one woman comes to him, a threat, and it says, then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. Wow. It's amazing how little, little threats and Little things can come at us in life, and we can blow them out of proportion. It's amazing how great God can move in our life and the victory that he brings us, and then when one thing of the world comes at us, we run. And you notice what he did here is he left his servant, and he went out into solitude. That's a bad place to be. It's why the church is so important, by the way. 
Because we need people around us when we're not thinking straight, when we're not acting straight, when we're not talking straight, when we're not talking to ourselves straight. We need somebody else to come around us and say, you're blind right now. And by the way, God showed up in an amazing way for you. Now listen to this. Verse 9, this one says, He came by himself to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? He said, I've been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. I'm all alone, God. Listen. And they seek to take my life and take it away. Did they seek to take his life? Did the people seek to kill him? No. Last I saw the people, they were on their faces worshiping the God that he just introduced to them. The only person I saw in this passage that was seeking to take his life was one woman. And so God said, go out and stand before me on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind and tore the mountain and broke it to pieces and the... uh, and the pieces and the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Some theologians think that 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 Hebrew word is like literally the sound of sheer silence. You know, sometimes God shows up in huge, magnificent ways, And sometimes God shows up in the midst of a whisper. Sometimes God shows up and asks you to make one gigantic, mighty, uh, life-changing step. And sometimes God shows up and says, will you take that little baby step? Don't think just because it's not the sound this weekend that God doesn't want to speak in the same way that he did last weekend. God doesn't always use fireworks and earthquakes and wind and fire to show up. Sometimes he just uses his voice in your heart. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, the voice came to him again saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Seth, you could join me. I don't think that God is asking him physically, what are you doing here? Like, why are you in, you know, what, what are you doing in the cave? You, you making a fire? No. God's question is much deeper than that. God's question is, why are you here instead of there? Why are you, O mighty man of God, whom I have anointed to accomplish my will on this planet, why are you here doing not what I've asked you to do instead of being there, continuing to do the work that I've clearly empowered you to do? What he's saying to him is, 
I've given you a gift, and I've given you my word, and I've given you my spirit because I want you out there with the people doing something. And so why would you be in here hiding and running for your life? One pastor said this, I don't think he was running for his life. I think he was running from his life. If he really was running for his life and he was really, if he was really desiring to be killed, he would have just walked straight to Jezebel and said, yep, I want to die anyway, make it happen. What he was saying to God is, take away my life because I'm feeling broke down. I'm feeling empty. I'm feeling like I can't accomplish this anymore. And so he ran from the life that God had called him to instead of towards it. And I felt like the Lord wanted me to ask you, if nothing else, what have you done with the promise that he made you one week ago? God showed up in an amazing and big way last weekend for this church. And if you didn't get an individual word, you at the very least got a song written for you from God to our whole church, not just to our pastors, not just to our staff, it was to our entire faith community. God sung this song over us. You're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, so shine. And I felt like he dropped this passage in my heart because even the greatest of prophets, even the greatest of men or women of God go through these these stages in life where we feel like we're alone and we feel like we're broken down and we feel like we even find ourselves running from the call of God. And so God is asking him, what are you doing here and why are you, why are you here not doing what I've asked you to do? And so I want to ask you, what are you doing with the promise that God gave you? Maybe it was a week ago, maybe it was a year ago, maybe it was 10 years ago. And for some of you, it might have been 40 or 50 years ago that the Lord put a call on your life. It might have been just a whisper. What do you really exist for? I believe that it's not only the prophets and the mighty, holy men and women of God that we see on stages in this world. I believe that it's every person that claims the name of Jesus that our job in this world is to turn people's hearts back to him. Whatever it is that we do, however it is that we use the gifts that God's given us, it's always for the purpose of our heart growing closer to him and helping other people's hearts grow closer to him. How are you doing that? How are you not doing that? Are you running towards, through faith, the promise of God in your life? Or are you hiding in a cave? Because God wants you to shine. Every one of you, he wants you to shine. I love how Jesus flips everything that the world teaches upside down. You ever notice that, that almost every teaching in the kingdom is the exact opposite of what the world will tell us? You know, we see people that are really talented in this life, and we see people that do great things in this life, and when we see that, the charisma and the, sp the sparkle of them and the glow of them, we see those people and we typically give them glory. This is what Hollywood is built on. 
We give them accolades. We give them compliments. The kingdom of God is opposite that. You know, the song that God gave us last weekend as a church is, you're a city on a hill and you cannot be hidden, so shine. This comes out of Matthew chapter 5. And this is, this is the why. If you were to go there and read the passage, this is the why. Jesus says, because if you shine as a city on the hill that I've made you to be, the world will see your good deeds and they will glorify your Father in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? That when we shine with the glory that God has given us. It's not for the purpose of us getting glory or us getting attention or us getting accolades. When we shine the way that he's empowered us and asked us to shine, the world will see it and they'll give glory to God. That's why we exist. Will you join in that fight? Will you offer your whole life to that fight? Will you stop limping between two different gods? You know, you make a God out of anything that you value the most in life. You make out a God out of anything that you love the most in life. I believe that there are truly no atheistic people in this world, even though some will claim to be. Because there is not an absolute lacking of deity. Everybody has a deity. It might be money. It might be your career. It might be your girlfriend or boyfriend. It might be sex. It might, it might could be anything. But is God your God? Because he's worthy to be your God in full. And when you accept him in full, and you join in the work that he's asked you to accomplish, and we do that together, this world will be changed.